Hey, good evening. Um, it is so good that you have uh, come out uh, to be with us tonight, particularly if this is your first time here with us, or maybe uh, you're new to church. Um, you'll quickly uh, realize that we are a group of uh, Jesus followers. We believe in the Bible, and we believe in, in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And actually, uh, through reading his word, we have discovered that uh, it changes everything. It's totally um, changed our lives. Um, So tonight, if you are new to following Jesus or you have not made that step, you will get a window, a glimpse into what it's like to be a follower of Jesus and why it's worth it. Um, You're coming at the end of a series on the Psalms written by the sons of Korah. Tonight, we're looking specifically at Psalm 84. Um, if you've got a Bible, and I, and I hope you do, um, you'll turn to it with us. Um, if not, we've got a big sky Bible behind us um, that the guys are going to put up, or you'll be able to find it um, online if you search Psalm 84. So we're going to read it together. Um, it clearly is divided into three um, portions, and we're going to look at each individually and pull out a few of the things that God has been showing me as I've looked over this over the past um, few weeks. So we're going to read it all together, and then we're going to go through it verse by verse. So, starting in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at the altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain even covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts, this is so good. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I want to title this talk, Life's a Journey. Life's a Journey. Would you pray with me really quick? Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to look into your word. God, I pray this would be more than an intellectual uh, lecture or an inspirational talk. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would see you for how beautiful you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I don't know what kind of relationship you have with journeys. I have a love-hate relationship with journeys. Uh, Tomorrow, like lots of you, I will start a week of journeys to work. I will get up tomorrow about seven o'clock. Mum and dad will struggle to get me up. Uh, They'll maybe, if I'm lucky, make me a cup of tea. I'll put in my car and I'll drive half asleep on the way to work to uh, an unending list of tasks to do. 
Uh, there's some journeys that I prefer more than others. A couple times a year, um, a bunch of us, uh, the young guys in the church, we, um, we make the crazy decision to look at wherever Northern Ireland are playing around the world and just book a flight and go there. And we take it in turns to organize, and some are better than others. And we end up in strange places around Europe. We've recently been in Azerbaijan or Bosnia or Belarus. We're going to Estonia in a few months. And the journey, to say the least, is somewhat always eventful. Um, I wouldn't use us to book your family holiday. Generally, price is the determining factor for whoever's organizing. We go straight to Ryanair, and it doesn't matter how long it takes or how many stops, we'll, we'll just get there. I could literally tell you any number of stories of where it's went totally wrong, places we've gone in with no visa, uh, flights to totally the wrong country from the total wrong country uh, outbound journey. There was one time uh, a couple of months ago where we were trying to get to Bosnia, and we were going, there were five of us, we were leaving from five different countries, we we're trying to reach Vienna, I think, we flew to Vienna, uh, and then flew down all the way to southern Croatia, on, uh, trying to get to Bosnia, Croatia's nowhere near Bosnia, I don't know who planned this, and then, <laughs> honestly, it was ridiculous, if you look at a map, our heat map is, we were crossing all over Europe, and then <laughs> we got, to, and apparently we were going to get in a car, and someone was going to drive us, we found this driver, in, uh, it was going to take us to Bosnia, right, Sarajevo. I, uh, when we got to the airport in Croatia, put it into my Google Maps, and it said it was going to be a three-hour drive. I thought, gosh, that's going to be long. It was a seven-hour drive. Okay, so we were looking around the airport, trying to find uh, whatever was going to be our driver. There was no sign. We genuinely found a guy who was like half asleep. We, we, we assumed, right, you must be our driver. Everyone else is gone. He said, yes, 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 that's me. Now, we weren't expecting a Tesla. But he took us to his car, and it was falling apart. <laughs> we were driving out of the airport. He's going really slow, and, I'm, and I say to the guy, is there you know, a speed restriction on these roads or whatever? We're going 20 miles an hour. He said, sorry, my car only goes in second gear. <laughs> this was the, the start of the journey. <laughs> Seven hours. We're halfway there. He stops in a, in, a, in a place called Zatar, which is about halfway, he literally drops us off at his brother's restaurant. He says, I'm going to sleep for two hours because it was such a long journey. He went and napped, abandoned us in this town. We had no idea where we are. Uh, we had no m- local currency. Anyway, we come back to the car two hours later. He's not there yet. Uh, it's dark at this stage. We're wondering where he is. And I look in the car, and there's a girl in the boot. There's a girl in the boot of this car, and, and uh, finally he shows up, and he says, oh, yeah, that's my wife. She's going to come on the journey with us to make sure I don't fall asleep. I've got a habit of falling asleep. That didn't really instill a lot of confidence in us, but the journey was exciting. We have a lot of good memories from these journeys, and actually getting to the destination is wonderful. See, the first section of this psalm tells us that the journey of life is a journey of desire. Um, We often use journey as a metaphor for the Christian life. Uh, Famous books like The Pilgrim's Progress, it's about a Christian, you know, going on a journey through life. We sing of songs like Amazing Grace about a journey through life. This psalm is more than a metaphor. Um, Once a year, um, God's people had to make a pilgrimage to the temple. Wherever uh, they lived, they had to make that journey. It was often long. And the psalmist here recounts that journey. And he tells us three things. So I'm going to make three points about the journey. 
And I think a lot of it relates to our own lives as Christians. So the journey is one of desire, one of surprise, and one of contentment. Let's look at a journey of desire. The pilgrim begins by saying to God, and you can follow along with me, how lovely is your dwelling place? See, God's dwelling place at this time was in Jerusalem. The psalmist is longing, his desire is to be there. Look at the words he uses, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out. Those are strong words. If you've ever been really homesick, you might begin to understand what he's feeling. He's consumed with his desire. He's even jealous if you look at the little swallows that fly around the temple grounds, building their nests, hatching their young near the altar of sacrifice. He longs to be as close to God as they are, in that place of intimacy and safety. Finally, he gives the first of three blessings in this psalm. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are forever praising you. Certainly, the temple was a beautiful sight, as is our church building. But he's not longing to be there simply because it was a fine piece of architecture. He's longing to be in God's presence, continually praising him. He yearns for the living God. He knows him personally. He calls him, if you look, my king and my God. It's like a husband and a wife who want to go out for dinner together. It doesn't matter where they go. What matters is that they're together. The person you're with is far more important than the place you go. And that's what the psalmist was thinking. The psalm forces us to evaluate our own desires. Can you speak or pray these words as if they're your own? Do you long to be in his presence? Does your heart pant after him? We all knew that uh, one of the sure signs of being sick is that we start to lose our appetite. Things that we normally crave don't interest us. The same thing is true spiritually. The loss of appetite for fellowship with and worship for the living God is a sure sign of soul sickness. So what, why does this happen? Usually it's because we've allowed the desire for other things to take its place. C.S. Lewis, in his Space Trilogy, um, in the second book of that called Perilandra, I would really recommend you read it to get an insight into um, sort of the images that C.S. uses uh, for having an appetite for God, for seeing God as supreme and worth uh, everything. He says this wonderful quote. It's one of my favorites. He says, if we stop to consider the unblushing promises that God makes to us, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This longing to be in the presence of God is fulfilled when we gather like this, to worship and to praise him. The New Testament clearly tells us that if we, the church, um, are the temple of God, he's here among us. When we come together, our hearts should resonate with the whole experience. It goes much deeper than this, than whether we like or, or, or don't like the music, whether the sermon is particularly for our tastes or not. Psalm 42 says, deep calls to deep. 
in the roar of your waterfalls. Hearing the people of God singing and praying should touch deeply and our hearts should echo in agreement. There are members of our church who are unwell and aren't able to be with us tonight. They long to be in the presence of God. More often than not, we're able to come every week and we're not as excited about church as we should be. So, how's your spiritual appetite? Does your heart cry out for the living God to be with his people? Does your soul yearn like the psalmist, even faint to be in his courts? When you daydream, where does your mind go? Do you envy those who can be here when you can't? Now, an a thing to think about is we often call the music part of our, our service the worship. And while that is true, um, the speaking part and the rest of the service is also worship. And so many elements of the Christian life are worship. It's more holistic than the few songs that we sing. Music can be used as a platform, but worship is actually a lifestyle. As much as it can be singing, it can also be conversing, declaring, remembering. Our thoughts and our affections in worship go towards the, the creator. Time alone with God. We start thinking about, wow, he's so good. He's saved me. He loves me. He's forgiven me. That's worship when our thoughts go in that direction. There is so much transformative power in worship. We can be totally transformed in moments of turning our attention to Jesus. So today, in, in these moments when we're here, we're expecting nothing less. As the, as the psalm goes on, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. When she may lay her young at the altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. These, these words are more than just nice words made for nice songs. They are packed with declarations of faith saying, the psalmist says, you are my God. And the same way you've delivered our ancestors from captivity, you'll deliver us. See, you will never worship God if you're always contingent on your current circumstances. Sometimes you've got to worship God because you've brought, he's brought, brought you through before and he's got a good track record. We only have to look at his track record and say, even though that loved one is unwell, even though my marriage is difficult at the minute, I don't know what's going on with my kids, I can look at his track record and say, the God that has always been and that always will be will bring me through. You're true, you're faithful, you're the same yesterday, today and forever. Because we believe that worship is not based on these momentary, difficult circumstances we find ourselves in. We can worship God when we don't understand. Many people in their hearts think, well, I'll worship God when it makes sense. And if we think that, we'll be waiting a long time. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Now, worship changes our appetites. Worship changes our desires. Maybe you've got something heavy on your heart tonight. You just can't shake it. It's been on your mind maybe for weeks, years. Can I say, believe in the power of intimacy with God. And it may not change your situation, but it'll totally change your perspective. When we gather like this, we're not just gathering um, to go through a religious routine. We're gathering believing that our paradigm, our perspective our worldview is going to grow as we are aligned over and over with what really matters to God eternally. He's changing us. We were made for relationship, love, affection with God. He designed us for one primary reason, and that's to adore him, to admire him, to love him, to seek him day by day, to sing of him. 
Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The whole thing's his. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's supreme. He's the God that we worship. We're not here reading a book written by man, and we're not here just singing tradition. We're worshiping the God who has always been, will always be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and right now in real time. We can't overestimate the beauty, the majesty, the glory of the God that we're worshiping. So we get together. This is the celebration of a redeemed community that lives life together. We get to uh, get together to remember what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to be, and who he is. And together, we'll watch our perspectives change, time and time. And he's on this journey with us, constantly reminding us, I'm here. I'm here. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me, and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the ways of your life. Number two, this is a journey of surprise. In verses five to eight, the word strength is used several times. Verse five says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. Verse seven says they go from strength to strength. It makes um, sense that on a long journey, like the, the psalmist, we would get tired and need strength, but it's more than that. In verse six, the psalmist talks about going through the valley of Baca, On the way to the temple, the pilgrim would pass through this valley. Baca was a Hebrew word that meant weeping or tears. It wasn't a fun place. But if you wanted to go to the temple to worship in Jerusalem, you had to pass through it. The surprise that we're talking about here is that the valley of all places can become a blessing. The valley of Baca becomes a place of springs. Not only that, but the autumn rains cover it with pools. And the word pools is a play on the Hebrew word for blessing. So the dry place, the place of weeping, becomes a place of refreshment, nourishment, and blessing. Maybe you've experienced this. Looking back over this past year, think about times you've had to pass through a valley. Dry times, times when your faith was tested, you were tired. Times you had no idea what God was up to. Times of weeping. Yet, when I look at my own life and when I talk to others, I see that we, you know, we wouldn't trade those times of weeping for anything. As hard as they were, somehow we can see that God was working. He showed up and he gave us strength. Refreshment, blessing. We'd never have known God's faithfulness had we not walked through the valley of Baca. How can we experience God's strength in these times? Maybe you're in one right now. How can we make the valley of Baca a place of springs? The psalmist says, those who receive strength from God are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. There's a direction to their life. They're moving towards God. They're moving towards God. Their hearts are set. And that's what allows them to make them a place of springs. We're constantly battling with temptations to go this way or that. We have a disease of our own affections. Far too often our hearts are set not on the pilgrimage, but on something else. Um, I have the weird habit of liking to do a few marathons. And although I'm quite slow in the race, there are some very fast people, and I like watching fast people uh, uh, on TV. There's a great guy that I love to watch, Iliad Kipchoge. He's got the world record at the minute, and he's probably going to set it again in Berlin this year. 
and he's so, so fast. Now, whenever I'm running a marathon, uh, thankfully I've got a good support team that tend to meet me a few places around the course. I look forward to those times. I like to stop for a few minutes, have a sandwich, whatever they've brought me, and really procrastinate going back racing because it's the last thing I want to do at that stage. And I finish the course in an okay time. But the guys that are great, that are focused, that are going for a world record or a personal best, they barely phase whenever somebody you know, stretches out a water bottle. They barely even turn their head. Their hearts are so focused on the goal that they don't get distracted by other things. Now, when we face difficulties, when we walk through the valley of Baca, and it never seems to end, what will keep us focused on the goal, facing the right direction? Certainly, the Holy Spirit will do a work in our lives. He's the one who gave us the homing instinct for God. Yet there's something that we can do. It's found in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. See, it's dependence. It's a walk of faith. It's God-reliance rather than self-reliance. Out of the spirit of weakness and helplessness, the psalmist cries here, Hear my prayer, Lord God. Almighty, listen to me, God of Jacob. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul had to learn in the New Testament. Remember the thorn in his flesh? We don't know what it was, um, but it was some nagging problem um, of the body that uh, kept Paul weak and frail. Paul asked God times, three times, you know, remove it, remove it, remove it. But each time God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So finally, Paul then said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. Second Corinthians says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, it's only in those difficult circumstances that keep us dependent. And it's only when we're dependent, looking to God in faith for those resources that we just don't have, that we'll really know the strength of God. Um, An author that I really like said that you've got to worship God sometimes when you're wet. And I thought, that's a bit strange. What does that mean? He went on to say, um, when the disciples were in storms, and and they often were, physically and spiritually, uh, one time Peter got out of the boat, of course. Peter sunk in the water, he got back in the boat, and all of the disciples were worshipping around him. Do you know how they were worshipping him? They worshipped him soaking wet from the storm that they thought they were going to die from. Sometimes the purest form of worship, the most transformative form of worship, is when you worship him soaking wet and you don't understand why. You say, God, I'm wet here, I'm frustrated but I'm going to stand here and worship you because I know you're true. I know you're faithful. It's impossible to please God without faith, the Bible says. Sometimes when we make the commitment to follow Jesus, actually, initially, our life doesn't really get better in our current circumstances. Often, it can seemingly be worse. First Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening. Maybe that's where you find yourself tonight. Emotionally, spiritually, internally. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you're in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process, he says, with glory just around the corner.
Notice what happens when our emotions in the middle of challenging, difficult seasons, we go, wow, this is crazy. Look how the Bible says that we're constant to jump to conclusions, looking at our surroundings, concluding that maybe God's taken some time off. We can't base our view of God on temporary, challenging, extended seasons in our life. First Peter says, so if you find life difficult because you're doing what God's doing, take it in stride. Trust him. He knows what he's doing and he'll keep doing it. That sounds easy, doesn't it? This is what Peter is writing to Christians like you and me who are feeling pressed on every side. Following Jesus can seem uphill. Our perspective can get warped, but we need to trust him. That's the complete opposite of what our brain wants to do. And then it says in 2 Corinthians, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's anchor onto this. Finally, this journey, this pilgrimage, is a journey of contentment. This brings us to the final section of the Psalms. In verse 9 to 12, we see the pilgrim was a journey of contentment. It's almost as if he's reached his destination. He finds in the presence of God every imaginable good. Have you ever uh, looked forward to something and it's turned out to be even better uh, than you thought? That's his experience. He cries out, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. In essence, he's saying that he wouldn't trade one day of God's presence for anything else on earth. Where do you dream of going, doing? What's on your bucket list? The psalmist is saying, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than any of that just for one day. He's saying, I'll take the most humble position in God's house above anything else the world can offer. And then there's this beautiful promise. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. He doesn't say nothing does he withhold because there are things that he does withhold from us. Instead, he says no good thing does he withhold. And there's a difference. This promise isn't for everyone. It's only for those whose walk is blameless, it says. So, like many of you, I'm thinking, count me out. Yet he isn't talking about moral perfection. No, none of us could qualify in that case. He's talking about what he says in the next line. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. See, that's what God wants. He wants his people to trust him. Throughout the scriptures, it's simple faith. Simple faith that pleases God and makes us blameless in his sight. Colossians 1 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Big word. Top, nothing above, nothing else to gain, nothing else to get. The goal of life. That's what it's all about. It's about him. Following Jesus isn't going to make us wealthy. It's not going to make us healthy. The message of scripture is that no matter what we're facing, he's enough. No matter what happens, he's enough. All sufficient. Wonder changes people. We need to see the wonder of our God like the psalmist. Seeing glory changes everything. So how do we find joy in God like the psalmist? 
Maintaining our satisfaction in him, well, that's probably the most important question you could ask. Because without it, we'll be swept away from Christ, with our affections going towards other things. If we don't find Christ of supreme value, we'll find something else in its place. Our hearts are a desire factory, and we're looking for alternative pleasures. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. The point of killing these things, like we're reading, is not that we would have empty souls, but that they will be filled and brimming with alternative desires. Desires for Christ, for godliness, for holiness. Desires for all that is good and pure and true and lovely and excellent. And we find those in Scripture. John 15 says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be full in you. That's what the psalmist has, full joy. Pursue this joy by looking steadfastly at the excellencies of Christ. And where do we find that? The Word of God. While crying out continually for the Spirit to come inside us and open up our eyes to see this glory, to savor this glory with the very savoring of God. Galatians 3 says, rejoice in the Lord. How do you rejoice in the Lord if you don't know anything about the Lord? If you're not seeing things in the Lord that cause joy to rise up in your heart. You see, when we become a Christian, it's not like he just flicks a switch and you rejoice with no mental content whatsoever. The Spirit opens our eyes when we look at the Word of God. We see Christ for all that he is that our heart is drawn out in joy towards him. The most authoritative, clearest place where we see the beauty of Christ, and this is what we have that the psalmist didn't have, is his word. The spirit inspired by the word so that we could read and see the Christ, to know the Christ, have our eyes go to the beauties that call up joy in our hearts. So, a journey of contentment. Being satisfied in all that God promises to be for now and forever. Seeing the magnificence of what has been brought by Jesus Christ for everlasting joy. Superior pleasures. Now, as we close, um, I don't think there's anything more hopeful than that. I think this is a journey of hope. Because Jesus, because of God's anointed king, Because of all that he's done for us, our journey is one of hope. Not a wishful thinking kind of hope, but a sure, certain hope. God has planted within us a longing and a desire to be with him. As we think about the first portion of the psalm, a desire to be with him. In this life, we'll then walk through the valley of weeping. But as we trust him in those difficult times, he will strengthen and refresh us. And when we get there towards the end of the psalm, It would be better than we ever imagined it would be. God is the author of our story and he's watching the journey, supplying us with strength every day and he will bring us home to live with him and the great company of the redeemed forever. The joy of our destination makes the current struggle worth it. That's the highest motivation, to want to be in the presence and the the fullness of God. Hebrews 12 just as we close, thinks about the life, this journey that we're on as a race. 
looking to Jesus. Now, in 2019, we think about a race. We think it's about speed, velocity, who gets there first. That's not the kind of race this is talking about. The prize is not recognition or gold or fame. This life is not a frantic foot race attempting to beat the Joneses. This is a different kind of race. Just like a runner in a lane, we do have purpose and direction. We've got an assignment. Our life is not as random and as abstract as we might think it is. It has order. This is an endurance race. And will we last? That's the question. What's the overwhelming characteristics of a race well ran? You know, a marathon well ran? You finish it. Our culture loves a sprint race. Have you seen this? You only live once, culture tells us. Live in the moment. We have a culture that celebrates um, individuals that accomplish stuff at a really young age. Wow, you are so young to do so much. That is so cool. See, the people that I think that are heroes, uh, many in this church, are the ones that have been steady, faithful, prayerful. They pray for me more than I do. Keep running at a sustainable pace. Have you ever ran with someone that's faster than you? I know that I have. A few weeks ago, I met a guy at a running club. Didn't really know him. We said we'd go out for a a bit of a run together. And we were having a nice conversation before we started, having a cup of coffee. And we started to run and continued the conversation. And five minutes in, you know, I started to realize this guy is faster than I am. And, you know, I was trying to get oxygen from the air. And he was comfortable. You know, conversing with me, um, you know, not even out of breath. He's maybe sweating a little bit more, but he's not really phased by the whole thing. For the entire uh, run, he talked. I, I didn't. Do you know what's amazing? If we're not careful, a lot of us in this life, we're going to run out of breath. Are we journeying on this journey in a way that's sustainable? See, the people at the beginning of this church 100 years ago didn't start something that would evaporate. Look, we're 100 years later, still serving, still loving, generations on. And maybe God's saying to us, hey, you're out of breath. I want to help you recover your breath. This life is not about who's the fastest, the quickest, the smartest, the coolest, the trendiest. It's about those who are faithful on the journey. You know the standard of faithfulness, and Jesus says it here. We'll finish with this, and maybe the band would like to come up. Are you tired? Worn out, burned out on religion, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch me how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. How good's that? Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely. And lightly. I think that's got to be the goal to learn freely and lightly.